This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. It's the Friday program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering Bible questions or questions about something going on in your life, uh, questions about our faith, why we believe, what we believe, uh, anything and everything. I'll do the best I can. All you have to do is call. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you are outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send them in with our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. Remember, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the hands-free feature in your phone by using the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner that appears at the top of the screen, and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. Well, uh, this Sunday, day after tomorrow, is the 1st of March. It's our son Ronnie's birthday, uh, but it's Communion Sunday here at Calvary Chapel. Um, a lot of you who will be going to church will be having Communion I pray that you'll meet the Lord on His terms, that you'll go to church looking for opportunities to minister the love of Christ to others, and it will change everything about your church experience. So that's what's coming up. Let me get to the questions while we wait for some phone calls. Uh, But the first question, uh, I've I've never had this question after almost more than seven years. Um, There's not many questions I haven't had before, but this is an anonymous one. It says, Pastor Ron, what do you love the most about Paula? Now, I could take the whole hour just answering that question, but I won't do it because I know that would bore most of you. But let me tell you what I love the most about Paula. I love, love, love the fact that she loves Jesus so much. This girl really, really loves Jesus. And it shows in everything that she does. It shows... Um, whether she's talking to me, her husband, or total strangers, it shows everywhere, everywhere. Let me tell you the second thing I love the most about Paula, although you didn't ask that. And we've been together in March, it'll be 50 years. But Paula is the church member every pastor dreams about. She comes to church every time to hear God speak to her heart. This girl takes notes. She takes notes all three services. She's here on Sunday and, of course, Wednesdays and Fridays she's here. 
and she's taking notes. She goes over those notes, and the reason she goes over those notes is because she wants those Bible studies, and she actually expects those Bible studies to change her life. And as a pastor, that's what you want. I, I wish my whole church would do that. And, and you know, Paula's been walking with the Lord 41 years, and yet now she comes to church still wanting to be changed. Those are the things I love the most about her. And we would all, including this pastor, her husband, these are things that we would all do well to emulate. She loves Jesus, it shows, and she really, really expects God to speak to her heart and change her life. She's always trying to change. That's why I think her walk never gets stale. I'll mention one other thing. I told you that would be the last one, but this is real quick. She loves me. Believe it or not, she loves me. That's a pretty cool thing, too. So, Anonymous, I hope that answers your question. That's a personal way to start, isn't it? 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Brandon. He says, is there one church government that the Bible endorses over others? You know, Brandon, there is a lot of misunderstanding uh, about um, what the Bible says about church governments. And I think most of the church governments that we see are based on the misunderstanding. Let me explain. Um, we have uh, Calvary Chapel, for example, is a pastor-led church. Now, I'm aware there's always dangers when when there's one person in control of things. But, um, you know, if you've got checks and balances and if the pastor, his heart is right with the Lord, um, then this is the, the form of church government that the Bible, through example after example, this is the church form of church government that the Bible endorses. When God has a vision, he gives it to a man. It started with Moses. And God spoke to Moses and Moses spoke to the people. Now things change under the... The, the new covenant, of course, uh, and they change because now we're all filled with the Holy Spirit. But God still has given pastors to the church, and the pastors are the ones who, who um, are the ones given the responsibility and the accountability for the leadership of the church. And we believe that's the way it is. I'm going to deal more on this in just a moment. But there are others who say no elders are supposed to run the church. A, a plurality of elders. Well, and, and that's because they misunderstand what Paul is saying when he's writing to Timothy and Titus. Um, he says, appoint elders. That doesn't mean to go to one church and appoint multiple elders. The reason he said appoint elders in the church is because house churches were spread all over region. So when Paul, for example, was writing to Ephesus, or when he was writing to Timothy, and, and Timothy was in Ephesus, but, but when he says appoint elders, he's, that's interchangeable with our word pastors. Now, our culture has sort of changed that. I have a board of elders. Uh, we have to comply with the law, and there has to be board meetings, and, and we have to have resolutions, and we do those things. So I've got a board of directors, a board of elders is what we call them. They're men who have been in this church for a very, very long time. I, I haven't changed elders. I've had one elder die and another elder had to move. But since the beginning, um, um, we've never had a problem with elders coming in and going out. Um, but they're not, past, they're not pastors. 
Their job is to support the vision of ministry that God has given me, and they do that, and yes, they hold me accountable. And they should, and they're men of God, uh, wonderful, wonderful godly men. And I can trust them if I was in trouble, if I was dealing with some sort of sin. Those are the people that I would be able to go to, people that I know love me and people that that I trust and, and I know they trust me. But they're not the leaders specifically. That's their job to keep um, supporting the vision of ministry that God has given me. There are others who will say, well, no, it's an episcopos or a bishop church, and, and there be pastors, and over the pastors in a region is bishop. But the word bishop in Greek is simply the same word for overseer, um, which also describes the pastor of a church. So we believe very strongly, Brandon, that uh, churches are to be pastor-led churches. Again, I want to deal with the obvious flaw. If a pastor's bad or if his heart gets fleshy, then he's going to make bad choices. And we see there are pastors who abuse um, the people in their church, both spiritually, sometimes physically, sexually. Um, you know, pastors are supposed to be servants, not lording it over the people, Peter says, but, but to do so because we're eager to serve. So I believe with all my heart, Brandon, that that's the kind of government in the New Testament church that that functions the best. My final word on this is simple. Here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, oh, by the way, there's one other one that I forgot, a congregational form of government, and that's not found anywhere in the Bible, not even in inkling. In fact, the only um, mention of a congregational type government is in in uh, the book of Exodus when the people decide what to do and they end up with a golden calf. So the idea that we're going to have a congregationally run government uh, absolutely makes no sense at all. Here's why, and this is really important to me personally, Brandon. Um, We do a lot of crazy stuff here. I've talked about on this program before. Uh, free school, free doctor's office. What church even has a doctor's office, let alone a completely free family practice doctor's office? We have a place called Manor House and Ministries, but everything we do is for, for free. If I needed, by vote of the congregation, or even vote by, by a plurality of elders, and I've got five elders, um, if I needed a vote, um, nobody ever would have approved doing things that don't make sense. But see, I know these men, and they know me, and they've seen God's hand move so many times. If I go to them and say, God said to do this, and I tell them to pray about it, and God gives them peace in their hearts. It's not just I tell them what to do. But but we move together as a group, and we're able to do some things that just couldn't be done. We couldn't do the free stuff that we do if it required a congregational vote or a vote of plurality of elders. And even if it was just a plurality of elders, let's say the vote was was four to one, there's always going to be somebody upset. So we tell our elders, this is the vision God has given me. Your job is to support that, to pray for me, to watch out for me, and to correct me if I, if I get goofy. But truth is that um, we've been doing this now for almost 25 years, and uh, I've had no turnover in the elders. Um, 
I just love these men and they're, they've been great for me. So I hope that answers your question. Here is a question from Ian. Ian says, could I have your thoughts on once saved, always saved, please? Um, Ian, I, I say it this way because I want to be clear. Uh, I say once saved, always saved, if you ever were saved. There's a lot of people who answer altar calls. And a lot of people make emotional professions of faith in Jesus Christ. But their lives never change. And if a life doesn't change, then clearly... Clearly, they haven't really met Jesus. They can know about him without knowing him or being known by him. Jesus said on the day of judgment, many will say to him, Lord, Lord, and he will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. Despite the things that they did and the professions of faith that they made. Well, um, if you ever really were saved, and Jesus is the one who holds you in his hands, the Father also holds us in his hands, we're told twice in the Gospel of John, that no one can snatch us from their hands. If Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14 says that the Holy Spirit is given to us by God as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, well, that's pretty safe and secure, don't you think? Now, Ian, if I guaranteed your salvation, it would mean nothing. Because I don't know the innermost workings in your heart. I don't know the intimate details of your walk with the Lord, but he does. So if you're really his and he's given you his spirit, well, then that seals the deal. God guarantees. Paul writes that he, Jesus, is the author, the, the beginner, and the perfecter or finisher of our faith. And I think too many of us, we kind of live our lives as though we have to finish the work. No, he is the one who begins it. He's the one who ends it. To the church at Philippi says, he who began, who began a good work and you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. It doesn't say that we have to complete it or we have to be faithful. It says, no, he will be faithful to complete the work that was begun. So, Ian, if you are a born-again Christian, all your sins, past, present, and future, forgiven, then there's no way that you can be kept from heaven. On the other hand, there are so many people who make a profession of faith. Some of them start really well. Some of them even continue for a while, but then they eventually fade away like Judas fade away. 1 John chapter 2. They went out from us to prove that they were never really one of us, John writes. So I don't see any tension there, and there's not a single passage of Scripture in the Bible read in context that even hints that we can lose something that God has promised us. If God can break a promise, we're all in big trouble, Ian. So those are my thoughts. I know we don't like to pass judgment on people, um, and we should try really hard never to do that. However, uh, when somebody walks away and their hearts get really, really hard, um, on the day of judgment, what they're going to find out is that you never really belong to me. Depart from me, for I never knew you. And that really is the question in heaven. From Earth's perspective, it's, do I know Jesus? No. It's, does he know you? 
Good question. Here is a question from Timothy. Timothy asked this question. He said, do you think the coronavirus means that God is coming back soon? Maybe this is his judgment on the world. Um, Timothy, we have to be really careful about saying those kind of things. First of all, they sound dumb. And I'm not saying you're dumb. I'm just, you're asking the question rather than making the statement. And that would indicate to me, at least, that somebody, you've heard somebody else say that. We have to be really, really careful because we don't know the, the, the thoughts of God. His ways, his thoughts are above our ways. Who can understand them? I think sometimes that we try to explain scary things away. You know, I know when earthquakes have come or when big storms have come, uh, um, uh, I, I've heard AIDS being called the judgment of God. None of that is true, Timothy. When God judges this world, everybody will know it. Now, I do say this. I do think that God uses these kinds of things to make people really think about their relationship to Him. Maybe to sober us up a little bit. Maybe to, to a little fear sometimes can be healthy. But, no, I don't think the coronavirus means God's coming back soon. Uh, having said that, I do believe that Jesus is coming back soon. But I don't think this virus has anything to do with it. One other thing I want you to remember, when God judges people, He cannot judge those of us whose sins have already been judged. That's why the rapture has to be a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. And if, if you think about this virus and the people that have died already, then... Um, you know, there's Christians who've died. Would God judge a Christian whose sins have already been judged? I think this is just a virus. I think it's just attacking people. And uh, we have to be really, really, really careful before we point a finger. God doesn't need help ending the world. So, um, Revelation, the book of Revelation tells us how the world is going to end. So, Timothy, we look up. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And when we do that, um, we'll expect for the Lord to return. Can I say one other thing about this? And this is important. Paul and I were in the car yesterday when we heard this. So I'm, I'm going to use general numbers because I can't remember the, the exact number. But there's something like 2,000 people worldwide who have died from this virus thus far. And I think that's a pretty close number to, to what we heard uh, on the news. Um, in the United States alone, in 2019, more than 16,000 people died from the flu. Now think about those numbers. That's staggering. We're freaked out about this coronavirus but we ought to be way more freaked out if we're given to fear. We ought to be way more freaked out by the flu. And yet we don't think about it that way because we are so easily afraid. And this is one of the opportunities, Timothy, that we have as Christians to show the world that, that we're, we're not like other people. Yeah, we have doubts, and yes, we worry, and yes, we're afraid, 
But we don't ever forget that we have hope. And that's important, it really is. Good question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Uh, Jana, I think that's how you pronounce it, says, is the rapture before the Great Tribulation or after? Uh, Jana, the rapture, church, uh, Jesus coming for his church, taking us from here to be with him, happens before the Great Tribulation. There's no other way it can happen. I explained this with the, the question about the coronavirus. Um, God cannot judge those of us whose sins have been judged. And all you have to do is read the Old Testament prophets and in Matthew 24, Mark chapter 13, Luke chapter 21, 24 and 25 for Matthew. Um, and, and clearly, the Great Tribulation is the wrath of God being poured out on a Christ-projecting world. Paul writes to the churches in Thessalonica, we have not been appointed unto wrath, but for salvation. When the destroying angels came to Sodom with Jesus, and Lot, who didn't live a righteous life, but but was we're told he's righteous by Peter when righteous Lot. In other words, he was pretty carnal, but he was a believer. When the angels went to destroy Sodom, they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it until Lot was gone. That's when the angels grabbed him and snatched him away. It's a picture of the rapture of the church. So, Jana, thank you for the question. I hope that helps. Let's go to James calling from Beaumont, Texas. Hi, James. Thanks for calling. You're on the air. Yeah. Uh, hi, Pastor Ron. Uh, from Belmont. Uh, just a, a little... Okay. Well, actually, I, I don't even think we have a light yet. I think it's still just a stop sign um, <laughs> just over there near the gas station. Not much to no it. Wal- um, no Walmart in your town yet, huh? Not yet. They haven't even okay. asked us about it, but... Uh, we have a hard enough time just holding on to uh, 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 some of the uh, homes and so forth that we do have. Um, I had kind of two questions, and both of them revolve around Mark. Been doing some reading in Mark lately, and, and I was kind of struck um, with some confusion about Mark six fifty two, uh, for they did not understand about the loaves; uh, their hearts were hardened. And this was talking about um, uh, the apostles. Uh, and I've never really heard anything about hearts being hardened um, uh, with 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 believers. Um, I mean, this was the only one that I've ever seen that I, I that I know of. And so I was just curious about how it was being used there. And then if you could uh, mention a little something about the way Mark ends, as far as the uh, chapter sixteen, um, uh, I understand that that earlier manuscripts might not have included some of it. And uh, and I guess it's the part that they did include that sometimes makes me curious because it talks about, um, uh, you know, snakes and speaking in other languages. And I was curious about that and if you knew maybe when it was added or why it was added. Um, okay, those were I can my do that. Questions. Thank you very much. I'll do that, and we'll try to get Belmont right next time it comes up on my screen as Beaumont. Thank you very much for the question. Um, the, the first question, 
um, their hearts were hardened, and it's not that they became unbelievers. Now, remember, they're still disciples at this point. They're early on in their relationship with the Lord, and um, and they're learning. But here's the thing. Their, their hearts were hardened to the wonder of God. And in this particular case, they're afraid again, and, and, and it's like Jesus saying, look, have you already forgotten about the feeding of the 5,000? You know, that feeding of the 5,000 is one of only two miracles in every one of the gospel accounts. That's how important it is. And, and, and Jesus was saying to them, um, look, have you already forgotten about what I've done? They're, they're, how are you going to do this? They're, and, and he's already demonstrated his mastery over all those things. Now, for you and for me, and I think this is really important for us to remember, James, for, for us, uh, we forget the things that God has done in our lives. We forget his faithfulness. When some weird situation comes up, uh, we sort of freak out and we forget that we have the power that raised Christ from the dead living in us. And they just took for granted the miraculous power of God. And it was almost like a lot of our churches, you know, get your miracle today. Um, you know, they, they just forgotten. They never should have, ever should have forgotten what God has done. Everything they should have known was possible. Now, I'm going to, on the other side of the break, I'm going to uh, uh, answer the other part of your question. So please hang on, James. Thank you very much for the call. We have 30 minutes left in our week. 340-9585. This is the word to stand on for life. We'll be back in two minutes. If you have questions about the Bible, you can send them to Pastor Ron and he'll answer them on the air or reply directly to you. Email your questions to Pastor Ron KSLR at gmail.com. That's Pastor Ron KSLR at gmail.com. Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of the show, 340-9585. James, the second question in his question, if you are just tuning in, was about the disputed passage of Scripture in the final chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Um, uh, James, one of the... Th- I, I, it would be so much easier for us to understand if, if um, at the, on the bottom of some of the newer translations, it didn't say some better, better translations omit this or leave this out. Um, what their, their, their conclusion is based on the fact that that uh, because a passage of scripture or manuscript is older, that it is more authentic. And I've never bought that logic, um, even for a moment. They, well, the closer it was to Christ, the, the more correct or the more complete it was. Uh, and, and I don't think so. What we've got here is uh, two different sets of manuscripts being translated by the different translators or the different versions of the Bible. I've said this often, uh, the, the King James and the New King James uh, are, are uh, majority manuscripts, the Texas Receptus, 
and um, um, they're really, really good set of manuscripts. Very, very reliable, and we have um, uh, a, a lot of, of pieces of those manuscripts uh, for validation. The newer translations, the NIV, the um, uh, NASB, and some others, they use the Alexandrian manuscripts that were found, and they have dated to be older than the, the majority transcripts. And so they automatically assume, well, those are the ones that have more authority. And in the newer translations, this is not a disputed passage at all. It's there. In the older Alexandrian manuscripts, they don't appear in at the end of Mark chapter 16. There's also John chapter 8 and, and a couple of other places. Uh, that doesn't make them disputed at all, other than in our own minds. So what you do is you look at the passage of Scripture and compare it to other passages of Scripture, and if it does no harm, it belongs. I personally think that Mark chapter 16 belongs in our Bibles. Excuse me. That was a sneeze break. And Mark chapter 16 belongs there, and I think there's some real, real value for us in there. Um, so I don't think that it really is um, um, or should be disputed at all. Um, uh, in verse 17 it says, These signs will accompany those who believe. And this is where the church in the 21st century uh, is lacking in power. Um, we don't have enough faith to believe that God will do what we need him to do to accomplish his will for our lives. Power comes from faith and power comes from obedience. Acts 5.32 says, God gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey him in the context there is always in power. And what he's saying is, look, when you go, he's saying this to the disciples, the principle works for us as well, when you go, there will be the power to meet you. You know, when Paul and I came here 25 years ago, or almost 25 years ago, uh, we knew we had a calling, but we had no way to make anything happen. Nobody knew us. We'd never been here before. Um, we didn't have any hookups. It was just, just we started sharing the gospel with people, and and uh, now 24 and a half years later, um, we, we look back and marvel at the work God has done, but we've seen his power firsthand over and over and over. And these disciples who would be apostles, they came back, they were sent out, and there was power to meet them. And if you think about the things that those that are said here, uh, in my name, they'll drive out demons. Well, that's done throughout the book of Acts. They will speak in new tongues. That starts in Acts chapter 2, but we see that carrying on. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. Um, we know that the Apostle Paul, Acts chapter 28, had a, a deadly snake latch on to him, and he should have died, but he didn't. Um... They'll place their hands on sick people and they'll get well. We can see all of those things in the book of Acts. So um, it belongs there in the passage in my thinking. And uh, even if somebody is adamantly opposed to that, I don't think it belongs there. 
um, those things all happen just the way Jesus said they would. So, James, that's my take on it. Thank you very, very much. From Belmont, Texas, that's near Seguin, I guess, is uh, is the bigger. Hey, by the way, James, you can pray. We've got a a potential uh, church plant coming in the Seguin area in the not-too-distant future. So um, that would be really, really a neat, neat opportunity. So uh, we'll keep everybody posted on that. 340-9585 for your live calls. Paul says... Can you recommend a preferred method of studying the Bible? Um, yeah, Paul, I can. And, and this is gonna, it, it always sounds more onerous than it really is. But I personally think that there are three types of study that everybody ought to have going on in the Bible all the time. Um, the first, and this is the simplest, just reading it. We've got to read it. Turn pages. Get to know the Bible. So like hover over it and get used to what it says and, and, and kind of discern the heart of God and the, the mission of God um, beginning in Genesis. Just read through the Bible. Um, we ought to read our Bibles through um, every year. And, and, you know, we just don't do that very much. Um, I learned as a brand new Christian uh, that people, you know, well, here's a one-year Bible. I thought that made no sense to me. So uh, what I did is I would read 10 chapters every day at the, from the beginning of my walk, 10 chapters every day, five in the Old Testament, five in the New Testament. And some of the books in the New Testament, of course, don't have um, five chapters, so you can read an entire book in that case. But, but if you will do that, you can read through the Bible twice in a year. And that's exactly what I did, and I just I couldn't get enough. So just reading it, becoming familiar with it. The second is sort of meditative or devotional reading. And when you do this, you need to read it systematically. By that I mean you start at the beginning of a book and don't end until you get to the end of the book. But you can do it in smaller chunks. So if you're going to read Ephesians with six chapters, for example, um, you might read... Uh, just the first uh, seven or eight verses in Ephesians chapter 1 and really chew on it and then go into the next ones the next day and, and, and slow down and let the Holy Spirit begin to speak to you. Just sort of taking your time with it. Open Bible, open heart. Um, and I call that sort of prayerful meditative Bible study. And, um, and I think that's when we're slowing down and we're expecting that God is going to speak to us through His Word. The third way, Paul, is inductive Bible study. And I think that's what we need to do uh, in order to rely only on the Bible. And by that I mean we let the Bible interpret the Bible. So you'll take these small chunks again, like I talked about uh, in in the the meditative study. Um, But you'll just observe it. Take an overview. Observation. What does it say? Interpretation. What does it mean? And then there's a third column, application. What does it mean for you? How are you going to use that? And I think that's where most Bible teachers spend most of their time because we're looking for the Lord to lead us in terms of application. The the Bible, if I'm teaching it to a a room full of people three times on a Sunday, uh, I want them to be able to use it when they leave church. And so when they leave church, then they know that this is something that they can take home. This is something that can change them today. And I think that's really, really important. Now, 
I know that sounds like a lot, so you don't need to do it all every day. But you ought to read every day and then and then kind of mix up the others and just really let God wash over you in his love. Let him let him just bless you abundantly with this word. Now, Paul, if you are a married man, I'm going to add one more thing. You and your wife ought to be in the Bible together. You know, not teaching it necessarily to her or or her to you, but reading it together. And letting the Spirit of God, working through the Word of God, knit your hearts together in the marriage. So it's just, you read a chapter, let her read it back to you, out loud. And then talk about it. Some of the best conversations you'll ever have will will result from that time in the Word. And, and the, the Word is supernatural, the Holy Spirit will knit your hearts together as husband and wife, one flesh, as cannot be done any other way. Of course, if you've got kids, you need to read them the Bible too. But that's, the, the I think, the best way to become familiar with your Bible. Here is a question from, let me go to my email that just came in. This is from Kirby, our email inbox. Uh, um, there are a few passages like Exodus 34.3 where God forbids anyone from coming onto his mountain except for Moses. Can I assume that Joshua went with Moses too? Um, Kirby, not all the way through. Now, now, one of the things I love about Joshua the most is that he was the servant of God, the servant of Moses. And so when Moses was in the tabernacle and it was lit up with the Shekinah glory of God, um, I believe a lot of that was when Moses was writing the very um, books in the Bible that were, we were studying, Genesis, for example. Uh, I, think, I think God was sort of dictating to Moses in those times. Well, Joshua couldn't go in. No one could go but Moses. But Joshua would sit outside the tabernacle. And in some cases, when Moses was done, Joshua just wanted to stay there and hang out. He would see the glory of God sort of filtered, but he'd see that tabernacle light up. And imagine what he was thinking. Oh, what is God saying to Moses now? I want to see what Moses sees. And and there were times when he just didn't want to come off that spiritual mountain. So um, there were times only Moses could see things. and Only Moses was told things. But Joshua, and this is a good lesson for all of us, Joshua Kirby wanted only to be wherever God was. He wanted to be only where God was. I love that question. Thank you very, very much. Uh, 340-9585. Here is a question from our email inbox from Jill. Um, Pastor Ron, what is your opinion or thoughts on a case in New Jersey where a boy with autism was being denied First Communion by the local Roman Catholic Church with a statement of he does not understand right from wrong. Since church officials have offered an apology and said the church has now found a way for the boy to have his first communion without delay, the parents are looking for a new church. How would you handle something like that if they came to you to receive Christ? Very, very sad. Uh, Jill, a couple of things. When when um, uh, the Catholic Church says that they're receiving Christ in the, uh, in the, in the elements... 
um, uh, through the Eucharist. Um, that's, a, that's a completely false tradition. Uh, we take communion as a, a memorial to Jesus, what he's done. And um, we want people to understand. That's why we explain. That's why we have teachers. Now, um, as if you've been listening to this program, Jill, you know the, the Catholic Church uh, is um, very nearly apostate. There are, there are some saved Catholics. There are just not many. Uh, they don't teach it. You have to be born again. So this is the kind of thing I expect from the Roman Catholic Church. And it's sort of just priests doing what they, they seem to want to do. Uh, even the popes, you know, they're, they're supposed to speak ex cathedra um, in the perfect will with the perfect heart of God. But then a new pope will come, is the pope that we have now, and he'll keep changing things. So um, it's not a matter of understanding right from wrong. Um, communion is for sinners, and little kids are sinners. And if uh, we do have children with autism, um, we explain to our kids on Communion Sundays what the elements are, and we encourage them to participate. Uh, We would never deny uh, anybody uh, who uh, is seeking Jesus, we never deny them the opportunity to come to the table of the Lord. But remember, the, the, the faulty element in the Roman Catholic Church is their view that the elements are the body and the blood of Christ. Not that they're symbols of, but that they are the body and blood of Christ. And that is uh, that would be the basis upon which they denied him. Um, what they're doing by reversing their course, of course, is just um, covering their tracks. It's, it's a PR nightmare. And uh, I'm, I'm grateful that the parents are looking for a new church. I hope it isn't a Catholic church. I want them to get born again. I want them to really know Jesus without the religious veneer that the Catholic church represents. One other comment on this, Joel, in in the book of, of Jonah, remember when Jonah got really upset because um, God was going to send him to uh, to Nineveh and, um, and proclaim uh, judgment. And Jonah didn't want to go. We know the story got swallowed by the fish. Uh, but even afterwards, he was really angry. And God basically said to him, why are you angry? Don't you know that I have 120,000 in Nineveh who don't know their right hand from their left? And so um, not understanding right from wrong means nothing to God. God is not going to judge him. God wants to include them. And it was for the sake of that 120,000. And these are presumably children. It's for the sake of the 120,000 that he sent Jonah, the prophet of God, to declare to them the truth. You know, Jill, if you can teach the Bible, um, we teach it verse by verse at all grades, um, then you give people the opportunity to understand. And our kids get it, believe me, our kids get it. Baptism is the one thing that we want the kids to know what they're doing, and we'll have a pastor speak to them and um, and just give them a few questions. Why are you being baptized? Sometimes, well, because mommy said to or daddy said I had to. Uh, we, we, we wouldn't permit a child to be baptized in that case. But the kid says, because I love Jesus and they have very little understanding. Jesus said, suffer not the little children to come unto me. And so we, we, we encourage them to do that. 
and uh, um, we want kids to know the Lord from the very earliest times. And believe me, when you teach them the Bible, it works. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question from Andrea. I like this one too. Pastor Ron, do you have a teaching uh, on the? Do you have a, any tips on teaching on the parables of Jesus? Uh, any tips to help me study would be helpful. Uh, Andrea, um, I do. Um, you, you know, I think they need to be read and read and reread. And I also think because every parable has one primary point to make. We have to be careful not to try to make too much out of each parable. Um, my pastor once said, somebody asked him, and, and now he's with the Lord, but um, they, they said, uh, what would you do different if you could start all over again? He said, you know, I wouldn't teach the parables until I really understood them, until I've been, maybe been teaching them for, for 15 to 20 years. Um we outsmart ourselves when we look at the parables, Andrea. Um, Jesus is making a point. You've got to look at the context. You've got to get into the the, the crowd. Um, look around. See what was going on. Uh, examine to whom Jesus was speaking. And if you do that, it's pretty easy to pick out the point. I'll give you an example. The foundation parable is the, the parable of the, um, the seed, sowing the seed. Um, you know, that's not a parable about somebody getting saved or losing their salvation. It's not a parable about um, who gets saved. It's a parable about our responsibility as Christians to scatter the seed. Jesus said the word is the seed. So we're to, as believers, we're to scatter it everywhere we go. We're not to worry about who's listening. We're not to worry about whether they get it or they don't get it, our job is just to let the Word of God be coming from our mouth. And as the Word comes out, God makes sure it lands on every heart. Now, some of those hearts are going to be judged by the Word that we scattered. But they're not going to receive it. Others are going to appear to receive it, and yet, um, because it's shallow soil and it's really hard, uh, it won't really take root. Others, it'll start to take a little bit of root, but then the cares and worries of this world choke it out. And, and some of the ground that we, we throw that seed out, it hits fertile ground and and reproduces itself. So the parable's point is to share the word wherever we go. And then all of the other stuff are just elements incidental to that one main point. And that's true over all of the parables, Andrea. Um, 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 I have a book uh, by by um, Herbert Lockyer, um, and I think it is sort of the the definitive commentary on the parables. Herbert Lockyer uh, on the parables of Jesus, and it is excellent. So I hope that helps. Little over four minutes here, so let's see what we've got. Mitch says, is it God's will to heal everyone? Um, Mitch had that question a couple times last week. The answer is no. Um, I know that's what prosperity churches um, teach. Um, they're wrong. They, they teach it because we like shortcuts. We don't like to suffer. And if we find some prosperity faith teacher, then we'll pay them a lot of money 
thinking, hearing what we want to hear. It is not God's will to heal everyone. Just look at the case of the Apostle Paul. Um, three times Paul approached the Lord and said, um, I can't take this anymore, this thorn in the flesh. He was in enormous physical pain. And God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, he told him to toughen up. He needed that trial. And and um, if the Apostle Paul didn't have enough faith to get healed, I don't think anybody has faith to get healed. So it is not God's will to heal everyone until we are with him. In this world, Mitch, we're going to have uh, trials. We're going to have pain. This is a fallen world. I had the question about the coronavirus earlier. Um, bad things happen, and people suffer. Some of the deepest, richest Christians I know, uh, Johnny Erickson taught as an example, has suffered immeasurably. And that suffering, sharing in the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings, has produced a Christ-likeness that I can't even begin to imagine. So it's not God's will to heal everyone. Don't let anybody tell you that there is so much damage done to people with that false teaching. Marcus says, and this will be my last question for the day, for the week actually, Marcus says, are action sins worse than the sins of the heart? By action sins, Marcus, I'm assuming you mean actually doing something rather than just thinking about doing something. And the answer to your question is yes, they are worse. Now, all sin separates us from God. All sin is the reason that we're not going to uh, go to heaven apart from being born again. Um, But when we sin against somebody in a physical sense, well, I guess murder is easy. Jesus said, uh, you're guilty of murder if, you, if you've called somebody a fool. Uh, well, I, I think if I, if I actually murder somebody physically, that's much worse than just calling somebody a fool. So um, cheating on, on a spouse is worse than thinking about cheating on a spouse. Remember, there's, they're all sins, and we have to deal with them. But there are greater consequences, and certainly lots of... of people, more people get hurt when we take action on our sins, if we are unwilling to forgive. Um, those kind of things, they cause real pain in people's lives. And our job, Marcus, you'll remember, is to, to give people the answer for the pain in their lives, not to add to the pain in their lives. So yes, action sins are worse, greater in consequence, and everything else. So um, that's just the way uh, it is. Ladies, don't forget that you can still register online for uh, retreat, calvaryessay.com, or you can come to the church here and, uh, and register. Uh, the retreat is this coming Thursday. starts at 7 o'clock in the evening. You will have a blast, and we'd love to have you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Thank you for a good week on the program. Uh, go to church tomorrow and let God use you to be a minister to somebody else. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, I'll be back on Monday on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. 
The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Well,